0: So much, Rick, for that kind of kind words, and uh, you said them almost like I wrote them for you. So uh, I appreciate that. But anyway, I I appreciate the opportunity. And uh, your pastor just uh, slipped out, and uh, I sort of want him to hear what I'm about to say. But you can tell him what I said. Uh, I know that he is a man of great faith. I know he is. You said, "Well, how do you know? If you didn't know, you never know him. Didn't know him till today, till a few minutes ago." I know he's a man of great faith because he's invited me to preach and he's never heard me preach. Now, that's a man of faith. I mean, because you don't ever know, you know. I have uh, I did that a few times when I was a pastor and I uh, I found that it increased my prayer life quite a bit to pray that he wasn't going to say something I wish he wouldn't say. But anyway, uh, I appreciate his uh, confidence and, and allow me to come be a, and to be with you tonight. Let me just kind of um, clarify a few things as uh, to who I am and where I come from. I was born in eastern North Carolina, but when I was about 13 years of age, we moved to Lynchburg, started attending the Thomas Road Baptist Church, and at that time, the Thomas Road Baptist Church ran three or 400, and uh, had been in existence since just a few years. My mother and dad got uh, very involved. My dad ran the audio for Dr. Falwell for many, many years and worked the uh, sound room and uh, when he got ready to go on TV, f- live from the from the church, my dad and two other men were the men who literally strung the uh, the conduits and hung the lights. And my daddy went and learned how to run cameras and taught the layman how to run cameras and, and did all that. So they were very much an integral part of the ministry. When we began to attend Thomas Road, uh, Dr. Falwell was not married. And uh, he got married about a year later. My dad bought a, uh, a lot in Vista Acres, and built a house, and um, we were living there. And um, uh, a couple years after Jerry and Maisel got married, they built a house just three doors down from us. So I literally grew up in my teenage years living three doors from Dr. Falwell. Mom was saved, Dad was saved. Uh, Diane, my baby sister, got saved in Children's Church and B.C. Car- Carter, uh, led her to Christ. My sister next to me got saved in a revival meeting with, with Oliver B. Green. And uh, I, uh, I was the black sheep. I was uh, lost as a uh, coon in the cane patch. Dr. Falwell often talked to me. We played ball together. Uh, in, the, in those days, Dr. Falwell loved to play football. He always wanted to play tackle. And uh, uh, he messed up more than one suit playing tackle football. And he played to win. He'd leave blood and flesh everywhere and, uh, and not his. But anyway, uh, he... Uh, uh, I, we became good friends, and uh, even though I was lost, I admired him and appreciated him. And one night, I came home from school on a Thursday night, April 1st, 1965. My mother begged me to go to a revival meeting with her. She said, they've got an unusual preacher. And uh, they said, she said, he sings, and he's bringing a quartet from Texas, and there's another choir coming from Danville, and it's going to be a lot, mainly music. She finally talked me into going. I first told her I had to do homework. She knew that was a lie because I never did homework. <laughs> so anyway, <clears throat> but anyway, I, I went that night and uh, none of my friends were there. Mother begged me to sit with the family in about three, four rows on the left-hand side from the front, I thought we were gonna sit in the back. Uh, we all had a seat as a family. and Sure enough, that was an unusual evangelist. He'd get up and he'd preach a while and then he'd sing a while. Well, he said it was singing, it was sort of singing. And his name was Lester Roloff. And um, I didn't pay much attention, but at the end of the service, the Holy Spirit of God had paid attention to me. And I was under deep conviction. I was holding the back of the pew, not going to go. My mother leaned over and laid her hand on mine. She said, son, if you'll go, I'll go with you. I stepped out that night and walked down the aisle and was met down in the front by an old deacon by the name of Mr. Mayberry took me into a little prayer room, opened the Bible and showed me verses that I'd been shown many times by my mother and dad and by Dr. Falwell and others. But that night, they, they resonated and they were real in my life and I invited the Lord Jesus into my life and as I prayed and invited Christ into my life, I could feel my mother's tears falling on the back of my neck. I walked outside and a few weeks after that, Dr. Falwell said, uh, would you consider going to a Bible college? At that time, I was working at the Holiday Inn I actually, at 17, 18, I was second shift uh, uh, kitchen manager in a five-star restaurant, Archie's Lobster and Beef House. Some of you older folks may remember that, at about five restaurants. And I I was the exhibition cook. I cooked out front. My claim to fame is one night an entourage came in, and it was Johnny Cash. And uh, he sat down, and he told Wilma, the waitress, he said, I want a filet mignon. I want it Pittsburgh. So she came back there and said, Johnny Cash wants a filet mignon in Pittsburgh. Do you know what that is? I said, I don't have a clue. I said, but I'll do it. She said, how can you do it if you don't know what it is? I said, I'm going to ask Jack Quigg. He was our manager, and he was from Pennsylvania. I figured he'd know I did. And he said, well, I said, what does that mean? He said, he wants it look like a piece of coal, black as it could be, charred about a quarter of an inch, just burnt. And on the inside, die, in the center, he wants it cold red. He wants it, he wants it raw in the middle. He said, can you do that? I said, I can do it went we got a pair of long tongs and dipped that filet mignon in the oil, turned those uh, burners as hot as I could get them. I cooked out in the dining hall in a glassed in area, had a white suit on, the bolo tie, and the cook, you know, the chef hat, the whole nine yards. I dip it in there and I put it on there and I'd hit it. Y'all know what happened then. <laughs> it was like the whole place was on fire. Then I'd step back with those tongs and just kept turning it until it got charred on all around and on both sides. I mean, it looked like it was burned up. I put it on some toast points and put the garnish around it and handed it to woman. She said, I'm not going to serve that, you burn it. I said, serve it in Spitsburg. And we had a little discussion about it. Finally, she agreed she'd take it out there to him. He ate it, and after he ate it, he, he said, I'd like the meat to meet the cook to cook that. And so she came and got me, scared me to death. I thought he was going to just chew me out for burning up his uh, filet mignon. I went out there. He said, young man, did you cook that filet mignon? I said, yes, Miss Cash, I did. He says it's the best one I've had since I, I left Pittsburgh. I left Pennsylvania. That Fle Mignon cost $9.95 in those days. He handed me a $10 tip. I walked away and I tell people I've been walking the line ever since. I <laughs> but that's my claim to fame. But after I had been saved for a while and Dr. Falwell came and asked me about going to Bible college, I did. I met my wife Doris there. Uh, met her the first day of registration, matter of fact. And uh, we later married a couple years later. And uh, uh, I, uh, it was on January 25th, my first year there, in the Bible conference, I knew God was calling me to preach. And uh, so I, I called my mom and dad, told them. My wife, my, that time, my girlfriend was seated beside me on that Thursday night when I went down the aisle and committed my life to serve the Lord. We got married little, uh, the next summer and a couple years later we found out we were going to have our first child. And uh, my wife said, honey, I want, a, I want a little boy. I said, I want a little girl. She said, honey, please pray we'd have a little boy. I said, honey, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to pray we'll have a little girl. She said, well, I'm praying we have a little boy. I said, well, I'm praying we have a little girl. And in those days, you older people know. You didn't know what you are going to get until they got here. And so finally the day come in, in September and that baby was born and uh, it was a little girl. We know who had the power, amen. But anyway, <laughs> see, uh, but two years later, God gave us a little boy. We named him Paul. Uh, actually, his name is Paul Rudolph Holland. I named after my father, the second. That was my father's name. My wife loved my daddy. Her dad was an alcoholic. So she loved my dad and we named him after my dad. Paul was an unusual little boy. He was extremely intelligent. We had him tested when he was about five, six years old, and they said he had to have special educational challenges because of his high IQ. He played chess when he was five years of age. He was an unbelievable little fella. I tell people he got his intelligence after his mother. She graduated magna cum laude. I graduated, graduated Lodi cum. Uh, but I did finally get through. But not only was he very intellectual, he was very spiritual. He had a heart for God from almost the time that he was able to walk and talk. And he always talked about Jesus and loved Jesus. And one day I was sitting in my office and Paul was about six years old. Doris, my wife, called me and said, Paul just came up today and told me he just got saved. I said, what? She said, well, he said he'd been listening to you preach and been listening to what we've been talking about in family devotions and he realized he was a sinner, knew that Jesus died on the cross for him and he got on his knees downstairs. and." in his playroom and just invited the Lord Jesus to forgive him of his sin and come into his heart and to save him. And he said to Mama, I know I got saved. She said, I took the Bible and took him back to the bedroom, went through all the scriptures. He seemed to understand everything she said, but she said, I I, I don't know. I said, well, don't say anything else to him. Let me see what he says to me when I get there. So that night after supper, at supper, really, he said to me, he said, Dad, I got saved today. I said, you did? Tell me about it. He told me the same thing. I took my Bible, went through the verses and He shared with me the same thing. That's a pretty good testimony, isn't it? When you know you realize you're a sinner and believe Jesus died on the cross for you and you're willing to receive him as your Savior, that's about as simple as you can get, but it's also about as true as you can get. I didn't say anything to him about being baptized or joining the church. He was just six years old. The next Sunday morning I preached, and sure enough, down the aisle he came. He never would go to children's church. He always wanted to be in what he called big church said, what is his mama? But here he came down the aisle. I stepped out to meet him. He didn't even speak to me. He walked over to one of my associates and said, I got saved this week. and need to be baptized and join the church. Uh-huh. A few weeks after that, I baptized him. Some weeks after that, or oh, maybe a couple months after that, a man by the name of Marshall St. Clair, he drove um, a truck for Texaco. And Mar- Marshall was teasing with him. He said, well, well Paul, what are you going to do when you grow up? He said, well, I'm going to be a preacher. Marshall said, you are? He said, well, Marshall said, well, where are you going to preach? He said, well, I'm going to preach you at the church. He said, well, what about your dad? He said, oh, you'll be dead but then. <laughs> Marshall said, do you have any sermons? He said, don't need any. Dad's got hundreds of them. <laughs> now, i tell you all that about our little boy so you can try to get a picture of the kind of little boy that our little boy was. Several months after that, though, Paul began to show some physical problems with eyesight and some other issues, and we took him to the doctors, and to make a long story short, he was diagnosed with a brain tumor. We had the brain surgery, and they removed the tumor, and it was not a malignancy. It was a benign growth, a craniopharyngioma. They told us that it probably would never come back, but if it did come back, it would be 10, 11 years, but some reason, medicine, medical science, doesn't know why, but it came back in 11 months, and this time it came back with a vengeance. We took him back in for another craniotomy, another brain surgery. And this time, Dr. Stevens said, he said, it: the tumor has tentacles and uh, probably he has less than a year to live. We weren't satisfied with that and we began to look around and try to find some other treatments. And we found out there was an experimental treatment for craniofrenomas at Boston Children's Hospital. We made contact with Dr. John Shilliteau and some others that were running it. There were three doctors, Dr. Shilliteau, Strand, and Cassidy, who were developing this new program. And they just started the protocols of having, having children with cranial come in for this particular treatment. It was a radiation therapy type treatment. Paul was accepted. He was number 29. We made our way there. And sure enough, that, that therapy just calcified, killed. That tumor. And we were so excited. After the first surgery, Paul had lost peripheral vision. He had also lost a good, uh, good portion of the function of his pituitary, insomuch that he had to be placed on total synthetic hormone replacement. We had to measure every drop of water that went into his little body and never dropped the chemo out. He was so smart, though, he was able to administer those hormones to himself and measured his own specific gravity of his urine and measured his own intake and output after just a few months. But he would had the treatment, still the bright little boy as always. And little did we know though, that when they, those treatments calcified, killed that tumor, it left two cysts. We went in August on vacation down to the Outer Banks. Nags Head, Paul began to have some severe problems. We rushed him to University of Virginia Hospital. Short time after we got there, just a matter of a couple of hours, he was in a coma. We later were to find out that those those cysts had ruptured and drained down on the left hemisphere of his brain. We were able to bring him home after 32 days, and he was home less than eight hours and back in a coma. was in the Royal Memorial Hospital for another 30 days. When we finally got Paul home, he didn't know night from day. It was as if someone had taken an eraser and erased everything in his little brain. But more importantly, he was now prone to seizures, multiple seizures, 12 to 17, 18 seizures a day, most of them in the night. And so we brought him home, we got nursing care, round the clock to take care of him. My wife went back to college and got her BSN, her bachelor's in nursing. And When there were not nurses there to take care of him, she was there as a qualified person because he had to have a registered nurse with him 24 seven. We kept him in our home for 25 years. I tell people we went 25 years and never slept one night all night in our home because he'd have the seizures and we'd have to get up. I had my pastor, Dr. Falwell, I had other preachers. I had my attorney, Pat Daughtery and some others to tell me, why don't you consider getting out of a ministry and getting a job where you can have better insurance and make more money? And I said, no, God's calling's without repentance. I'm not gonna do it. And God enabled us to stay in the ministry all those years until he died in 2004. It was during that time I was invited to preach to a bunch of preachers in Richmond, Virginia. Happened to be in Richmond. On the way I began to think about Lord, what do you want me to preach? And I had a message on soul winning I was going to preach. The man who preceded me to be in in the speaking lineup for that that occasion, that pastor's fellowship was a young man. He's not so young now. He just retired by the name of David Rodenheiser. David Rodenheiser, pastor of the Calvary Baptist Church in Alexandria, Virginia for many, many years, just retired. And he got up and he preached my sermon. He even used my illustrations. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, what am I going to preach? But all the way from Roanoke, Richmond that day, I was saying, God, can you give me some something that, I can glean from, I don't want to waste this problem, this sorrow of going through all of this with my boy. Now I jotted down five things and the Lord seemed to speak to me and say, I gave you the message. Now I got up and I shared those five things. Since that time God has used those five lessons I've, say, I've learned from tragedy and I really haven't learned them, I'm still learning them. All across this country, and I don't know how many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times I've shared the message and all the major Christian colleges across the country, from Howells Anderson to Liberty University to Tennessee Temple to Pensacola, and all of the colleges, I've brought this message I'm sharing with you. And as I bring the message, I want to precede it with just making a couple comments, and then I'll give you my text and I'll give you the message. I do not presume or suppose that me or our family are going through any more tragedy than some of you, and maybe not as much as some of you. Tragedy comes in all shapes and forms. Tragedy is not always the illness or the death of a child. It may be the illness in your own body. It may be a financial reverse, it may be a broken relationship. I always say this, especially in these days in which we're living, your tragedy may be that secret that you keep in your heart, that abuse you suffered as a child that nobody knows about, but when the lights go out and it's dark and you're all alone, it eats you as a demon every night. I don't know what your tragedy was. I don't know what your tragedy is. I don't know what your tragedy will be. But I can assure you, every one of you have either been through a tragedy, you're going through one right now, or you're going to face one in the future if Jesus tears his coming because suffering is common to all men. I also know this. Whatever your tragedy is, whatever your loss is, whatever your heartbreak is, whatever the burden you're called upon to carry, God never intends for it to make you bitter, but always to make you better. Thus I come to my text. I can quote it and so can most of you. And we know that all things work together for good. To them that love God and those who are called, According to his purpose. That's one of the most misunderstood verses in all the Bible. Oh, listen, that verse doesn't say that everything that happens is good. It isn't good my boy had a brain tumor. It isn't good my boy died. It isn't good my wife died. My wife of 54 years. It isn't good. But all of those things are ingredients that God wants to use to bring about a good result in my life. I may not see it today. I may not understand it tomorrow, but I can rest in faith believing that God is in control of all the circumstances of my life and he intends for it to make me good. For the next 15, 20 minutes, if you allow me, I'm looking at the clock. I got 22 minutes. Then people start looking at calendars and not watches. (laughs) I want to share with you five things that God is teaching me and God has taught me somewhat. I'm going through the tragedy of the illness, the sufferings for 20 years. My boy with multiple seizures. In his latter years, his bones had become so frail because of the medications and the and the synthetic hormones that he would have grandma's seizures and he'd have stress fractures up and down his little spine and pain medication wouldn't relieve it. He lived in horrible pain. Let me give you the five things. First of all, I have learned of God's unfailing grace. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter number 12. Now, time won't allow me to do an exposition of the text, but I want to just give you what it is saying and what the Apostle Paul was saying as he wrote it. It is written by the Apostle Paul. In verse number one, we read, it is not expedient for me doubtless to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. Now, because of time, I'm going to paraphrase it. Follow it with me, though, in your Bible. In the next verse, Paul says that he knew a man uh, in Christ. He says it was above 14 years ago. And he said, uh, whether it's in the body, I could not tell, cannot tell. Without the body, I cannot tell. Uh, God knoweth. And he said, but this man was called up into the third heaven. Now, every scholar I know and every commentary I've ever read identifies this man as being the Apostle Paul. He's talking about himself. He said, 14 years ago, I was caught up into the third heavens. Then he said that this one that was caught up into the third heavens, in verse number 4, that he was caught up to paradise and he heard unspeakable words which is not lawful for man to utter. What Paul was saying was, he said, 14 years ago, God highly honored me. I was called up to the third heaven. I heard words that were unspeakable. I don't think I'd do the text any harm if I suggested to you that he probably saw things that were indescribable. But whatever the case, he's talking about himself being highly honored of God. Then he goes on and he says, but of such a one, I, of such a one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in, in my infirmities. Now look at verse number 7. Now he's talking about he had just been called up and God had highly honored him. Now he talks about, but lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Now what Paul's saying was, God highly highly honored me, and then God humbled me by giving me a thorn in the flesh. Now, if you go in and read the next verses, he said that three times, thrice in the King James, it says, I went to the Lord, and I asked him to remove this thorn in the flesh. Now, there's a lot of talk about what that thorn in the flesh, and a lot of preaching about what that thorn in the flesh is. I don't know that I know, but I do know that I believe it was a physical infirmity. You say, why do you believe that? I believe that because his name was changed from Saul to Paul, and Paul means little one a frail one. I believe that because on at least one of his missionary journeys, he traveled with a medical doctor, a man by the name of Dr. Luke. I believe that because when he was writing to the churches in Galatia, in chapter 4, he said, if it would have been possible, you'd have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Why would he need their eyes? Probably because some of the physical uh, afflictions that he suffered had something to do with his eyes, and he was saying, if it would have been possible, you'd have given me your eyes so I could see better. In the last chapter of Galatians, the Bible says, and the King James says, that he wrote unto them a large letter. Literally, it says he wrote to them in large letters. Why did he write in large letters? Because he had something wrong with his eyes. Whatever the case, Paul was given some type of thorn in the flesh. And the Bible says three times, thrice, he comes to the Lord and asks for that thorn to be removed. Now, get the picture. God has highly honored him and caught him up to the third heaven. Now, God has humbled him by giving him this physical affliction of whatever it might be. And Paul now is asked for to be delivered from that affliction and from that pain, from that tragedy, if you please. And God does not answer, yes, I will, but he does answer him. He said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I honored you, now I've humbled you, and I'll help you, and the help that I'll give to you is, is," look at verse number nine, my grace is sufficient for thee. And I'm here tonight to tell you that no matter what you've been through, no matter what you're going through, no matter what you may have to go through in the future, that the grace of God is sufficient to see you through every trial, every tribulation, and every hardship heartache that you'll have to go through. God's promised us an unfailing grace. You say, what is that grace, preacher? Well, the word grace means unmerited favor, but that doesn't tell us much. Let me describe to you living grace as I understand it. Living grace is when you've called facing a problem or situation in your life, and you've cried until you can cry no more. You've hurt till you think you can hurt no more. You don't think you can get up and face another day some way, somehow the sun rises and you get out of bed, you face the day, you go through the responsibilities of the day and at the end of the day, you look back and you say, oh yeah, one more time he gave me grace enough to see through another day. That's his unfailing grace. I've learned that he does that for you. In the midst of your hurts, in the midst of your trials, in the midst of your difficulties, he has an unfailing grace. Number two, I've learned He has an inexhaustible supply for every need. Paul said, my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Huh. I did a little calculation one day, preacher. I was trying to figure out, I wonder how much this medical bills had been for Paul. And I knew some getting some of the notifications of what the insurance had paid and all the rest. And I began to do that. Then I added the cost of a registered nurse, an RN, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And the day, the t- periods of time that I knew we had that, and it was up into the millions of dollars. He said, oh, I bet you were glad you had good insurance. If you think insurance paid it all, you're sadly mistaken. He said, then how did you pay it? i tell you how I paid it. My God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Let me give you one illustration. The kind of insurance that we had back in those days, we paid and then the insurance reimbursed. Well, I didn't have that kind of money. And in those days, you could go to your personal banker, which there is no such animal as that today. So I went by and saw Jerry Austin, Jerry Oaks, my bankers, and I said, I'm gonna need some money to take care of boy, my, my boy. You can't, you—they you don't can't do this anymore either. Jerry Austin said to me, he said, you, you write the checks and pay it and call me and I'll see the money's in your account. And I ran up about a $90,000 bill. And uh, I was t- trying to pay that off, paying the hospital bills, paying for the medications, all these kind of things, and I ran out of money. I liquidated my savings, I cashed in my retirement, I'd barred against every credit card I had. I'd barred against the house. I was out. Paul's got to go to Boston for treatment. And the tickets for me and my wife, Doris, and Paul to go was $800. I didn't have the money. A friend of mine by the name of Dr. Bill Monroe from Florence Baptist Temple in South Carolina called me. And he said, and he just had a nationally known evangelist, he said, he's had a cancellation, can you use him on Sunday night? And I said, sure, and the word got out. And I, have some way, got the word, the word got down to Lynchburg. One of my dear, dear friends, Bobby Smith, and his wife, Carol, who sent me a message and had planned to be either here or at Blue Ridge today, but was unable to get here, and her husband now, Ron Godwin, were gonna come hear me preach, but nonetheless, her husband and her showed up at the service and brought a, a, a nice-looking older couple that said they were students at what was in Lynchburg Baptist College. Today is Liberty University. After the service, the evangelists had to get on the road and get down the road and didn't, didn't even want to go in and get anything to eat. And so we invited Bobby and Carol and the Allberries uh, to our house for coffee and cake. As, they were, walk, as we were, they were walking in, Bobby pressed a check in my hand and he said, We just felt like you might need. I never said a word to anybody. You might need some money to buy you in Boston. It's not much, maybe help you a little bit. And I dropped it in my pocket. I didn't look at it. We had the coffee and cake and everybody was leaving. And the, all, Mr. Alberry pressed some money in my hand as he's walking out and he said, Jeannie and I want to want to help you and be a blessing. It's not much, maybe help a little bit. And I'm thinking of myself a college student. You know, if it's $20, praise God, you know what yeah. I mean? I mean, that's the way it was when I was a college student. I dropped that in my pocket and I didn't look at it. We needed $800 to buy the tickets next week. After they left, I said, honey, Bobby gave, Bobby and Carol, and Carol gave us a check. He said, how much? I said, I don't know. I opened it up and it was $300. I said, honey, it's $300. She said, honey, that's not eight. You know, women can really pop your bubble. You know, you <laughs> And I said, well, the olive gave me some cash and I, I reached in my pocket and I pulled it out and it was a $100 bill, but it was thick. And I peeled it off. You know what? It was another 100 And it was another 100 You got it. Five $100 bills and a $300 check makes $800 because my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now, I can stand here and tell you time, story after story. I can tell you about when we arrived in Boston, the lady who met us there, who had received a phone call from a pastor in Roanoke, that we were there her, to her church, and they had prayed for us. They picked us up, took us out to eat, took us, a, 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 provided a, an apartment for my, my wife and my boy to live in because this treatment was outpatient. They put food in the pantry. They they took care of their uh, my, my wife and my little boy just like it was me. I was able to go back and take care of my church and take care of my daughter and God not only will supply your financial needs, he'll give you friends in your life when you need them. Amen. Because my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Amen. Number three, I've learned he has an unquestionable purpose. I grew up in small Baptist churches. a matter of fact, they were in eastern North Carolina before we moved to Lynchburg. They were free will Baptist. No independent Baptist churches down there in those days. And I used to hear those preachers preach, and many of them were good men, godly men, but they didn't always, were not always right in their theology. I don't ever hear them saying, you know, it's a sin to ask God why when bad things happen in your life. You ought not to ever ask God why. After I went to got a little Bible knowledge and studied the Word a little bit, I always want to get all them preachers together and ask them one question. Why? Why? <laughs> Why is it wrong to ask God why? Didn't you ever read the book of Job 16 times? Job either asked outright or implied God, why is this happening to me? Who is our great example? Is it not Jesus the Christ? And when he went through the greatest trial and tribulation of his life, whenever one day he was taken outside the city of Jerusalem, placed on a Roman cross, nailed between two thieves, God pulled the shades of heaven, turned out the lights, and in the darkness of a thousand midnights, Why he bore your sin and your sin and your sin and your sin and my sin in his own body, we hear a voice cry out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? If he who was God yet man and man and yet God could ask his father why, don't you think he understands why we say why? Don't you let anybody put you on a a guilt trip because there's a why in your heart as to what has happened or what is happening or what may happen in the future. You say, well, preacher, can you tell me why? Why did I have cancer? Why did my wife die? Why did my child get killed? Why did I lose my business? Can you tell me why? No, but I'd like to give you three suggestions. First of all, sometimes God allows things to come to conform us to his image, to make us more like him. You know that verse I quoted? You know it well, Romans 8, 28. I won't give you a deep, deep theological explanation and understanding of that verse. Now, you'll have to stay with me. It's deep. How many of you like homemade biscuits? Real homemade biscuits. Now, if you guys are under 40 and your wife tells you she's making you homemade biscuits, and you hear a sound come from the kitchen that says, boosh, they ain't homemade i about making the real deal now. Did you ever think about how you had to make them? To make homemade biscuits, you have to have flour, right? right. Well, you go home and eat your big hand of flour. You say, I ain't going to do that. It'll choke me to death. I know it. Yeah. To make good biscuits, you got to have old dry flour. To make good biscuits, you got to have lard. Now, you go home and eat a spoonful of that, you probably won't make it to work more. <laughs> but to make good biscuits, you got to have lard. make good biscuits, you got to have buttermilk. Now, there's a few souls that drink that stuff why I do not. Know. <laughs> I don't like buttermilk. But to make good biscuits, you gotta have old bitter buttermilk. You gotta have a little pinch of salt, a little pinch of baking soda. But if you'll take old dry flour and lard and buttermilk and a little pinch of salt and baking soda, mix it all together, knead it up real good, pinch it out, roll it out put it on a grease pan, stick it in the oven about 350 degrees, then it rise up about like that, brown on top, brown on bottom, some of you are getting hungry already, aren't you? <laughs> and if for some crazy reason you would take that pan, pull it out, preacher, open it up, put a slab of butter on it, and set it on your head, your tongue, slap your brains out trying to get to that. <laughs> That's Romans 828. You see, I don't understand that. Let me see if I can help you. God takes the flour of life. God takes the buttermilk of life. God takes the lard of life. God takes the salt and baking sodas of life. With nail-scarred hands, he mixes it all together, sticks it into the oven of his grace, and pulls out a result in your life. That's good. The individual things that happen are not good. But the end result, God's got something in mind. Sometimes God allows things to help us to confirm our faith. How could I ever know he was the God of all supply if I never had a need greater than what I could meet myself? How can I ever know he was the God of all comfort if my heart was never broken? Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, I've learned more about God in the valleys of life than I ever did on the mountain yeah, yeah. Sometimes God allows things to happen to confound an unbelieving world. You see, your unsaved friends are watching your life, and they say, "No wonder he's living good. He's got a good job, good family, everything's good." Well, no wonder he live, you know he, he can he can honor his God. But look at me, lost everything. Look at me, suffering as I suffer. Look at me, as I have to deal with the tragedies in my life. And then all of a sudden, something happens to you, and that unsaved person turns and looks and says, "Now, wonder what he's going to do with his God now." And your testimony in the midst of your tragedy can be the very thing that'll lead somebody to the Savior. Because they say, well, I want what he's got to help me get through what I'm going through. Number four, I've learned of his unexplainable peace, the peace of my God which passes all understanding, Paul said in chapter four, Philippians, verses six and seven. Time doesn't allow me to deal with it a whole lot. Let me give you to, as a, an illustration. Our boy was in and out of hospitals all of his life. He was in UVA, he was at a Memorial, he was at Queens in Napa Valley, California. He was at Duke, he was at UNC, he was at Pittsburgh in the hospital. I'm going on and and bore you to death. Because sometimes he would go into those seizures and he wouldn't come out. We'd have to rush into the hospital. I've carried him many a time in my arms. Laid him in the back seat, and my wife hold him. him Shaking and convulsing with the seizures to get him to the emergency room. One night he was in the rural Memorial Hospital. His electrolytes were out of balance, and he had gone into seizures, and they had him on IVs and trying to regulate his sodium levels and all the things to keep getting him get him out of the seizures and keep him out of the seizures. And my wife has spent the night with him for two nights. Now I went over and I said, honey, you need to go home and get some rest. I'll stay the night. You come in the morning early enough for me to get home to take Angie to school. That was our daughter, that little girl that was born. I talked to her right before I came in the building today. She left. Early, early in the morning, Dr. Michael Sis come by and he said to me, he said, preacher, I need to talk to you. Call me pastor. And I said, yes, sir. He said, Paul's vitals are not good. This could be the day that he dies. He didn't die that day. Live years. (sighs) But this could be the day that he dies. I said, thank you. My wife came and I told her that and we prayed together and cried together. I left. I got in the car. It was a rainy, dreary day. I was going down 581. On the way to my house from Memorial Hospital, and all I could think about, this could be the day my boy dies. And I began to cry, so much so I couldn't see the drive. And I pulled off the road between Hershberger Road and Peters Creek Road, fell across the steering wheel. And I prayed this prayer. I said, Lord, if you want to take him, I'll take him over there under to the cemetery. And I'll watch him, i say, Lord, his little body beneath the sod. And I'll watch him, he just put the sod back in place. I'll stand at the grave and tell anybody that wants to know you're still God, yeah. you're still good, yeah. and I still love you. Preacher, I didn't have any extra biblical experiences, but it sound, seemed like to me that the heavenly dove took, his, took flight and took his roost up in my soul and fluttered his wings and there came over me a peace like I'd never known before. Yeah. You say, have you always had that peace since then? No. I've had to ask for it many, many times, but every time I've asked, I've received it, and every time I've sought it, I've found it, because my God has promised me peace in the midst of every storm of life. And I'm here to tell you, no matter what you're going through, no matter what you've been through, the God of all peace is available, and his peace is certain for you if you'll ask for it and believe it. Last of all, and I'm done, I've got two minutes. I've learned to expect an unpredictable result. You never know how to use, how how God's going to use your tragedy. No tragedy, no sermon that I've delivered to you tonight. No tragedy. A book written by my late my late wife. Her picture's there with me, beautiful woman. Susie and her were dear friends. No book. The unknown authors in the Christian realm that write a book. The average one will sell between 500 and 1,000 copies. We don't sell our books. They're over there on the table if you want one. Just leave a love offering, please, so we can replenish it so somebody else can get it. But my last order, I topped 12,000. Never been in a bookstore. Never been sold on Amazon. Just people buying them and giving them out. It's over there if you want no tragedy, no book. You love music in this church. You ever sing it as well with my soul? Horatio Spafford wrote it. His wife and daughters, made a trip to Europe and some people say it was a wreck, some say a storm. I don't really know, but whatever the case, his daughters were swept overboard and lost at sea. He got a wire from his wife telling telling him about their situation, he boarded a boat He told the captain, he said, when we come to the place where my daughters will slip overboard, you come and get me. I care not the hour. Early one morning, I knocked on his door, Mr. Spafford, Mr. Spafford, where's your place? Ratio Spafford got up and went and stood on the deck of the ship, and as the ship sailed over the watery graves of his his daughters, he wrote those words, bless you and me every time we sing them, don't we? It is well with my soul, no tragedy, no song. Huh. That's a great story, isn't it? But it doesn't end there. Horatio Sp- Spafford got his wife and returned to Chicago where they lived. They sold all of their earthly goods and they went to what was then called Palestine and started orphanages to reach Palestinian and Jewish children alike with the gospel of the Lord Jesus. 1985-86, I made my first trip to Israel. My dear, dear friend, who went to heaven last year. Dr. Harold Wilmington was a adjunct professor at what was then called the Institute of Holy Land Studies. When I got to Jerusalem, I went by to see Harold, and he said, I want to show you something, Doc. Come on. I walked through an old rusty gate into a a German cemetery, and there were two headstones, Mr. and Mrs. Horatio Spafford. I said, what in the world? They buried here. He said, oh, yes. They came over here, and they started the orphanages, and they're said that there's still, some, some people say that some of them are still in existence. He said, I don't know but they're buried here. No tragedy, no orphanage. Bill Rice Ranch, Dr. Bill was a dear friend of mine preaching to me. Don Cabbage married his deaf daughter. Taught my wife sign language, Don did. Largest deaf ministry in the world, Bill Rice Ranch. No deaf daughter, no tragedy. No ministry. He said, what's your point? Don't waste your sorrow. Whatever you've been through, let God have it. Give it to the Lord. Let him use it to bless somebody else. Touch somebody else. I've got illustration after illustration I can use. Time won't allow me to do it, but God will take what has happened in your life and use it to bless somebody else. Don't let it go to waste. Give it to the Lord. One last story and I'm done. Paul's tumor had returned. He had had the first surgery. We'd just been told that the tumor had returned. I called my mother and dad lived in Lynchburg. They drove the Roanoke. They got there. Dad said, son, we got Paul a gift. My mother went inside and was taking care of Paul and playing with Paul. My wife was on the phone with some other family members and such. And we put together this big wheel thing that my mom and dad had bought for him. He came out and he jumped on that thing. He took off down. He took off back. But the motion. Caused cranial pressure. About halfway back up the driveway, he grabbed his little head and began to scream, on my head, on my head. I went and got him and took him inside. My mother met me at the door and she said, son, I'll take care of him. My dad and I finished cleaning up where we put the big wheel together. I went in the house to check on him. My wife was still doing something in another part of the house. My mother was with him in his room upstairs and I could hear him vomiting. So I went upstairs to check on him. As I was going upstairs, I heard him ask my mother. He called her nanny. He said, nanny, nanny, why does does Jesus let my head hurt like this? I heard my mother say, I don't know, Paul. I'm sorry, nanny doesn't know. Then I heard my little boy do what I heard him do hundreds of times when he was in pain and when he was so sick. He began to sing. He always sung the same little song. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I got to the head of the step and I didn't go into Paul's room, I went into Angie's room, which was next door, shut the door and fell on my knees and said, dear Lord, please help me learn what my little boy knows. And my heart's broken. When there are circumstances in my life I don't understand, when I I can't figure it all out, help me to know Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. If you forget everything this old preacher said tonight, will you remember this? No matter what you've gone through, no matter what you're you're going through, no matter what you may have to go through, Jesus loves you. You say, are you sure? Yeah, I know he does. How do you know, preacher? Because the Bible tells me so. If you're here and you do not know Jesus Christ as, sa- as your Savior, you'll go through tragedies. You'll go through heartbreaks. Where will you find grace? Who will you call upon for peace? Where will you get your answers? Oh, there's no hell to shun, no heaven to gain. I want to know Jesus as my Savior Just see me through the dark hours of this life. There is a heaven to gain, though, and there is a hell to shun. If you don't know Him tonight, would you come and receive Him as your Savior? If you came tonight and your heart's heavy, you're going through something, you've been through something, or maybe it's the anticipation of what you may have to go through, why don't you come just kneel around the front. You said, I can't kneel. Sit on the front bench. And just tell the Lord, Lord, I'm going to need you. Lord, I do need you. Lord, help me get through it. We never get over some things. I'll never get over the death of my boy. I'll never get over the death of my wife. But by His grace, I can get through it. And in the midst of it, I can have peace. And I can find a purpose. Why don't you come tonight if you need to? Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Stand with me, if you would, please. We're just a minute or two over. And I wonder if we could have someone to come, maybe play the piano or whatever. Just play some, something soft, I don't care what. My dear friend, if your heart's heavy tonight, or maybe you're just concerned about somebody else, I'm gonna invite you to come. I don't know if that's your custom or not, but I'm gonna do it tonight. Come on, some are coming, you ought to come. If you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ as your savior, speak to the preacher, tell him I need to get saved. Let somebody share with you. What about it? Come on. Will you do it? Come on. We wait patiently for you, but you'll need to come now if you're going to come. What about it? Maybe it's that hidden hurt that's within that nobody knows about, but God knows about it, and God to touch you and God to help you, God to give you peace in the midst of your storm. I'm gonna let her play through one more verse, then I'm gonna pray for these that have come. If you'd like to have one of my wife's books, they're over there. I'll put an offering plate or something over there. I'm not gonna be able to sell them. You just put on put whatever you want. Whatever comes in, will go back to help provide more books. But most of all, I want you to come if you don't know Jesus. He'll save you, but he'll be your helper through the midst of every dark hour of life and then give you a home in heaven. Father, these that are around the altar, I don't know their burdens, I don't know their hurts, I don't know their losses, but Lord, you do. And I pray, Lord, as the pastor comes and closes his as ever, how he feels, lad. Lord God, I pray that we might understand there's a grace for every trial, there's a grace for every mile. There'll be new grace when we need it to face whatever might come in our life. Thank you, Lord, for being so good to us. Thank you that you saved us. Lord, thank you that you didn't leave us here to suffer alone. You sent us a blessed Holy Spirit to paraclete to come alongside us. You went through every tragedy a man could imagine, rejected of those that he did so much for. The pain, the agony, the suffering of the cross, the poverty, foxes and holes had holes and nests, but the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. Lord, you understand our herds. May we learn to cast every care upon you knowing you care for us. I pray, Lord, that you bless us and help us to remember Jesus loves us. I know he does. The Bible tells me so. Pastor, you come close to service as you fill in.